be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. My name is Dan Cottrell and with me for this podcast is Simon Namby. We're trying to work out whether he's called Si or Simon. He says he's got lots of nicknames, so at the end of it we might call him a nickname for him. Anyway, Simon uh, is a highly qualified strength and conditioning coach who has a strong interest in rugby and he'll tell us a little bit more about that as we go along. For a number of years, his underground athletics blog was the go-to site for all the best links for the latest thinking on coaching and surrounding topics. And as a consequence, he's been a keen myth buster. So that's one area we'll be discussing a little later on. So first of all, welcome, Simon. Hi, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Good. I'm glad you think it's a pleasure. I shall be putting you under the microscope and we shall see if that's a pleasure later on. So uh, if possible, could you just give us a little uh, background to your coaching journey so far? Uh, Yeah, it's a very long and winding journey, Um, like most of my conversations, a bit rambling. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm 40 now and uh, I've done lots and lots of different jobs over the years. And uh, sport and uh, playing sport and coaching has always sort of been in the background and I think when I was probably 25 something like that I wanted to sort of get into um, coaching because my sort of playing days were coming to an end and um, strength and conditioning and what it wasn't really called that then it was more sort of fitness coaching really um, was something that really appealed to me because that had always sort of been a real passion of mine and my, my old man was a big he's a big trainer and he's always trained a lot and sort of got me into that a lot. And that was pretty much all I ever relied on was the physical side of it when I play rugby school, school wise was pretty poor. And uh, so I sort of got into that, uh, into fitness and strength and conditioning as it sort of became. And, and now I'm really into coaching as a whole, uh, the whole the process of coaching. I think it's quite an interesting thing because a sort of realization that I came to a little while ago is to, just to follow your passion at the time because you, you never know what you're going to end up doing and I was trying to force myself to read a lot of things and you know certain conditioning can take you into physics and maths and biology it can take you down some deep rabbit holes and you try I was sort of trying to force myself to read things or be interested in things that I had no interest in and wasn't really taking that much on board and so now I've sort of come to a, a few realizations about about myself and about the way I approach things and one of the things is is just follow what you find interesting at the moment and you never know where it might take you so you know I started off really being a rugby player and then getting into S&C and like probably one of the most enjoyable groups I ended up coaching recently was uh, a group of under 16 netballers which was fantastic and pretty much ended up coaching netball and it was really random but it was probably my most enjoyable coaching experience so uh, once again so why was that the most enjoyable coaching experience uh, I'd say because because of the engagement I had and because of the engagement the girls had with the process. And so they were a really... So just so to say, this word process is coming up a lot. It's uh, a Gareth Southgateism. Yeah. Uh, it talks a lot about process. So just tell us what you understand by process. Yeah, so you know, you're never going to hit the end point, I wouldn't have thought, in what you're doing. You know, like you've got a destination in mind, but you're never really going to get there ultimately so it's, it's much more about going through the process of what, of what you're doing and it was sort of the thing for me was 
taking them from being quite a the, the, the environment they were in was very um, uh, systematized. You know, it's very. Uh, I'm trying to think of the right word would be very um, regimented. That would be the right word, and it was trying to get them to to open up a little bit um, and take control of what they were doing for them. You know, to to learn what what they were doing, why they were doing it, and. I was really fortunate. There were two really good coaches there, Anita and Lisa, who sort of gave me free reign to do whatever I wanted and supported me as well because I didn't know a lot about netball. And so I really enjoyed it because the girls were really good. They really asked good questions. They were really interested in, in the whole process. And I had the freedom to be able to experiment and do all sorts of different things. So what were those? What were those? Diff- what were those different things then? Because uh, I, mean, I say this as uh, someone who's uh, my only unbeaten season was with a netball team. And so I think that, uh, not that I was a particularly good netball coach, uh, yet I really enjoyed, as you say, the processes. So what sort of things were you doing with them? Yes, yeah, so I, I think that's quite interesting because I, one of my big things at the moment is stories because I think stories give context to everything. And that's why informal com- coaching conversations, I find, and it seems to be a lot of other people find really interesting because people are a lot more honest about what they've done and um the the stories give context to what they're talking about. And so the story would be with with those girls was that they were part of like the England netball setup. So they're on the performance pathway for England netball and they needed an SNC coach. So I came in and was delivering um the SNC and I had obviously got into all my skill act stuff, all the skill acquisition uh, type stuff we'll probably talk about a little bit later. Um and I was getting very interested in autonomy, mastery and purpose. Um so you know taking control of your own development for myself and then for trying to get that to come through for the athletes by by giving them a purpose for what they're doing so um the girls the, the story would be I started to try and give a little bit of control to the girls but I was I think this is an interesting thing as well in coaching at the moment is that everything is about everyone's talking about the players having ownership and doing everything for themselves but I think there's a little bit of a danger of dumping people in the deep end and while some people might swim you know, two or three might swim, 15 or 16 might drown. And because they've never, you know, like I said, you know, the girls are in quite a regimented environment and it worked really well for them. And there were reasons for that. And I'll probably get into that a bit. But um, in terms of having any control over stuff, so, so I'll get to the story is um, I, got, I we did six plyometric drills, like two footed hops forward, two footed hops, back, hops backwards, a single foot hop, left foot, right foot, etc. So we went through six drills. And then on the netball court, I said, right, pick one and do it over a third. Pick another one when you get to the next third and pick another one when you get to the next third. And just do that. And then I just stood back and set my stopwatch running. And the girls were just standing around in pretty much silence for the first minute, a little murmur of conversation for the second minute. It took them nearly six minutes to get going and to do that. And I said to them at the end of it, like, do you know how long that took you to get going to do those to pick three things from six. And they're like, no, I said, oh, it was five minutes, 45 seconds. And they're like, wow. I said, what do you think of that? You know, how do you, what do you sort of take from that? And they're like, wow, that's, that's quite bad. It's quite a long time. And I was like, well, you know, okay, fair enough. And I said to them, like, why, why do you think that is? Why do you think it took you so long? And they, they said to me, well, because we've never had to make decisions like that before. And because, you know, a lot of things have been done for them, you know, and it, I, the environment was brilliant that they created there. You know, if you ask the girls, you know, to get their skipping ropes out or, you know, um, right, go and get your ball or whatever. They had everything and it was all ready to go and they were really pitched on and really attentive. But in terms of 
being able to make decisions for themselves. They couldn't do it. And so that, that was our starting point. And then I said, well, you know, you're going to have to make a lot more decisions now in your training. So we started to give them a little bit more control, a little bit more control until sort of, I think probably eight months later, they were entirely running the warm up and pretty much the first half hour themselves and self-selecting um, drills, skills, warm-ups, stretches, speed work, all from themselves that was all relevant to themselves while working with other players. And another little story from that would be that basically if, if, if you learn to give up a little bit of that control, you can be amazed at the things that, that you can get back from it. And, and it's a story I put on Twitter and uh, it was basically, a, we were just doing a little uh, game to warm up and um, all they had to do was one of them stood on under the post and the rest stood on the edge of the circle. And you, the person standing on the post throws the ball to one of the players standing on, on the edge of the circle and the player has to clap before they catch it. And so they're trying to catch people out. And um, as I was uh, setting up a couple of these games, I, uh, I came back down the court and all of the players were in the perfect ready position which is something S&C coaches are always coaching is the, the ready position. You know, it's sort of like slightly bent in the knees and the hips with your hands up. And they're all in that perfect position. And I sort of wandered down there and, and I said, what's going on? I said, oh, we found it too easy. So we're now playing a game where you clap the floor before you catch the ball. And because they had, because they felt they had the uh, ability to, to change things, like I'd given them the freedom, and because we'd sort of shown them how to change things and how to make something easier if it's too hard or make it harder if it's too easy, they developed it. And that's now how I teach that ready position. We just I just play that game. And uh, and then I say to the players, like, right, play the game. And then I say, right, ready. And they all hit, hit that position. I say, right, that is the ready position. And so once they've done it two or three times, I tell them, right, that's the ready position. So if I say ready, I want you to hit that position. So you don't have to tell them what to do with their feet, what to do with their hands, their hips, their knees, any of that kind of thing. The game just does that for them and it's a really natural thing and it, I found that that teaches the ready position so much quicker than anything else I've ever done and I never would have been able to develop that myself that was purely from the players and the only reason that they've been able to do it is because they sort of learned how to get their own freedom in what in what they were doing so that that would be and that, you know it was just little bits and pieces the stuff that I took away from coaching that group in that respect was I just thoroughly enjoyed it they were really really good good group and it was it, I took so much from it from that from that respect which leads to about four or five different questions I mean first of all the story in itself is I, I think anyone who's listening would be interested in because there's a there's a there's a start there's a middle there's an end and uh, though the end of course is not the end in itself we don't live happily ever after it's uh, there's the there's an end but there's a there's a new beginning for something else that we want to explore so first of all um it took time for them to get in, into that situation where they were able to make decisions for themselves. So I think a lot of coaches think, right, I'm going to give more autonomy to my players. And it, nothing really happens because the players don't know how to make decisions or they don't have enough knowledge. So in a sense, you created some knowledge for them to to take up those positions or to warm up properly because they understood why they were doing it as a being, as opposed to being told, right, we're going to do uh, this exercise, this exercise, this exercise, because they knew why they were going to do it. Is that, is that a fair assessment or is it more complicated than that? Yeah, no, I'd say it's a fairly, a fairly fair assessment. And I kept, you know, one of the things I kept saying to me is look, because it's my opinion is that 
no one knows better what to do than you do for you. But I don't know what the best thing for you to do is. You you do. You might not necessarily consciously know it. And so chatting about things, drawing out questions will allow you to be able to do that. And so I was always saying to them, you know, like, you, you know best how to warm up for yourself. You know best how to prepare for a game. And I was saying a lot of those things to them. So that was the preparation for it. And then just really holding a hand from very shallow water, here's six things, pick three, to then like, right, there's six things, pick pick, um, pick two of them or whatever and, and integrate it with something else, you know, and just start to make more and more decisions as they go till, till the end. So you give them, sorry to interrupt there, you, get, you give them a, initially, instead of giving them a free reign to do whatever they want, you give them only a very few decisions to get them understanding they've got to make decisions. And as they learn to make decisions and have the confidence that they can make decisions, it works for them. They then use those that sort of confidence as you give them more information and bigger challenges. So by the end in a sense, you're standing back and they're making decisions without even you saying, make a decision. So the, the story is that yeah, yeah. they were in that ready position um, and changing because they had that confidence to make a decision rather than you say, right, you make a decision. They were, they were yeah, yeah, yeah. directing themselves to make those decisions. Now, is that, that in a sense, that creates a problem for coaches because there are some aspects, and in rugby in particular, where... We want them to be in a certain position, which is the safest, best position. Let's take a scrummaging position. Is there a way that they, um, a player could be in the best or the most appropriate scrummaging position without them having to go through a full demonstration? Do you think that's possible, given that you've created that ready position for the, the netball players? Now, there's a challenge for you. Yeah, no, definitely. I hundred percent and uh, do you know I think the biggest thing I, I think there's a I think one of the things I've, I've talked about a little bit is biases mm. and I think action bias is a massive thing amongst coaches and uh, there was a sort of there was a study and they right can we just, just go back go back go back one stage just to explain what you mean by bias because it has a, a number of different connotations I know where you're going with this so just explain um what you understand by bias yeah okay so it's it's uh a series of sort of subconscious mental processes that make our lives easier. If you had to consciously think everything through that you were doing, you wouldn't be able to achieve anything at all. So we have a set of biases that we operate on. That's it's probably an interesting thing because it comes onto principles, which is another um, massively interesting area for me at the moment. They sort of run together is that they allow you to make sort of quick judgments that will work. And I'm, totally pulling this number out of the air. It's not a, an actual figure, you know, sort of 80 to 90% of the time they'll work well for you. Well, I and mean, then that's a, that's a bias in itself because you need to pull, you need to have some rule of thumb sometimes because otherwise you, you can't, you can't function. You, if you had to scientifically yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, work your way through every decision, uh, no, no decisions would probably ever be made because you would never get to the, to the end because you have to make some assumptions. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, carry on. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, one of one of the there's a, there's a whole list of biases, and there is a book that's called Irrationality by Stuart Sutherland. Yeah. And he lays out uh, all of the biases. If you want to know more about it, that, is the definitely the book to go to. Um, so there's a whole series of them. There's the halo bias, the rational, uh, the 
action bias, etc. So we were talking about the action bias and the study, uh, one of the studies that I think sort of highlights it quite well is the goalkeepers. One of the best strategies as a goalkeeper, and you probably would have seen, I, I was telling my wife this, and it was quite interesting when we were watching some of the penalties in the World Cup, is that often the best thing to do is to stand still because if they're going to go into the corners, you're never going to get it anyway. And a lot of a lot of strikers just just you know send it straight down the middle, or it's close enough to the keeper. If they didn't dive, they would have saved it. And there was quite a few examples of that in the World Cup that I mm. saw. And so action bias is the idea that doing something is better than doing nothing, but it's not always the case. And so fortunately, I've remembered how to bring that back to what we were talking about. Is that I think there's a lot of action bias in coaching that, that you feel the need that you have to be doing something all of the time. And I think that's changing now. But certainly when I did my level one and level two, and when I've been doing, uh, I uh, trained as a personal trainer, and uh, you know I've obviously done my accreditation with the UKCA, a lot of what you're briefed on, I think this is really changing now, so I've got to, be, I've got to sort of say that, but it used to be in a lot of coach education, and I've been told this a lot, is if you're not talking, we can't judge you. So you need to be out there active. I want to see you actively coaching, get involved in the practice. And what that leads to is a lot of people getting out and they're constantly throwing words and cues and getting involved and SNC, they're touching people, moving them into the right position and doing all this active coaching. And I think a lot of the time you're doing more harm than good. And there's a bit of a phrase knocking around is you sort of become the fridge because you're humming away in the background and everyone just tunes it out. And so there's a few a few clubs after that that, that you, people get nicknamed the fridge because he's like just there in the background humming away. Oh, oh, he's screaming, lads, knees, knees, knees. Or, you know, and it just becomes background noise and no one, everyone stops listening to it. And so um, one of the big things that I do now and a lot of the stuff I do is, do you know what X is? Show me. So do you know what a good scrum position is? Show me. And if they show me a great scrum position, the only thing that I'm going to do by getting involved in that is fill their head with a load of nonsense that's potentially going to make it worse for them. So if they're really bad at something, you can correct that one thing. So if, let's just say you take the scrum position. Uh, Dan, have you, have, you, have you played in the scrum before? Have you played in the front row before? And you say, yes. Right, show me your, show me your scrum position. Show me you know, how you bind up. And say you've got a really nice flat back um, your weight's well distributed, but your feet are in slightly the wrong position. I don't need to start telling you all about your uh, your back position. All I say, all I need to say is, and it might it might be because I, I, again, probably something else we could get into is implicit versus explicit learning. But in that case, if there's one thing I can say to you, and it's explicit, and it's like, just move your feet, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, bang, you're in a great position. And that could be, you know, that that could literally all happen within thirty seconds, and that's that solved. Where other coaches might be there for half an hour coaching someone to do something they can already do. Um, I was interested when you said show me, because sometimes coaches ask questions when they want uh, players to verbalise the situation. So what happens here? And then that they you're then testing the, the, the player on their ability to talk through something, which is actually probably quite a complicated thing to actually talk about, and it's much easier if you show them. So showing, I think, is a much more powerful way of of doing it. So you've asked a question to show me. Now, the for me, what you did with the ready position was almost trick the players into getting to the ready position. So I'm wondering if we could trick players into doing things like um, a good scrummage position by 
um, by the way that we set something up. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that is um, that is sort of the premise of constraints-led coaching is that you, you use the constraints of, of either the player themselves, uh, the environment, or the task to create the behaviour you want without explicitly telling them what you're doing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that is... I think it can be a really important part of coaching because I think... Uh, what is the... Uh, there's a piece of research, I can't remember the name of the guy who did it, but basically you can only remember three to five things. So, you know, if you're giving someone directions... And you, everyone's sort of experiences. If you get more than three or four directions down the road, then I'm I'm sitting saying to my wife, "What did he say next? <laughs> where, where are we going?" And uh, she, "Weren't you listening?" I was like, I was just in, in one out and out the other. And so, um, uh, another story, okay? Because uh, I like stories. So, um, my nephew loved Olympic weightlifting, or he loves Olymp- Olympic weightlifting. And uh, in 2012, I took him to the Olympics. Uh, at London and uh, we went to watch the weightlifting and a Korean lifter um, was uh, he failed his first two snatches so you do three snatches and then three clean and jerks if you if you fail to make a lift in the snatch you're out of the competition right so the guy missed his first two snatches so the pressure's really on him for his third snatch because if he misses this then he's out of the Olympics and his coach, obviously, we, we couldn't hear what he was saying. And if we could, he was t- talking Korean, so we wouldn't have known. But he was screaming and shouting at this bloke. And he was pointing at different parts of his body and all the rest of it about what he was doing. And he was really giving him what it looked like. And so I don't know, because he might not have been, it might have been purely motivational, but it looked very technical. And as the guy walked out, he was muttering under his breath. And he's talking himself through getting in the setup position. And he did a, a fairly technical, a, a fairly textbook first part of the lift and then he just dropped it on the floor because he'd been talking himself through what to do and he totally forgot to lift the weight so he, it was really bizarre to watch because he got the he got the bar into an excellent position and then just dropped it on the floor so in the middle of his thighs he got the bar from the floor to the middle of his thighs and then just dropped it and, and my nephew just turned around to me and said like he forgot to lift <laughs> and it was because he was talking himself through what he was doing and so um that that was an interesting one in itself because my nephew I I, uh, got him doing Olympic lifting and I just taught him, I showed him the cleaning jerk and I showed him the snatch. And then I said, look, there they are, just go and have a practice of them. And I left him to it. And he ended up winning the under 18 national champions. And when people were talking to me, like he ended up training with a proper Olympic lifting coach because there was only so far I could take him. And uh, people would say, oh, well, what is he at overhead uh, squat? What about his clean pull and all the rest of it? I said, oh, he don't do any of that. And it, well, what do you mean? I said, oh, I just showed him the full lifts and that's it. He's, that's all he's ever done is the full lifts. He's never done any of the, the rest of it. And I don't, oh, oh how, how do you teach the first pull? I said, well, I don't. I just got him to do the cleaning jerk and that, that's the end of it. And I think there's certain sports like golf and Olympic lifting and things like that that uh, got so technical. And that's why you see so many mental problems. You know, the, the, in golf, it's actually got a name, the yips, because people overcomplicate it so much. I mean, one of the girls I was working with who's part of the England golf program, um, she got given a two-page bio- biomechanical analysis. Um, and I understood three quarters of it. And she took it to me and said, oh, I've been given this biomechanical analysis. What, what do you think of it? And I started looking at it and I was like, Jesus Christ, I'll tell you what we do with this is rip it up, chuck it in the bin, and we're just going to go and have some fun in the gym because that is just going to fill your head full of nonsense. And I think uh, – 
that's where that implicit bias, uh, implicit, um, implicit training comes in. Is if you can get players to do things without even realizing they do it. So one of the examples is um, you're starting to say a lot of people know this because, like, uh, probably a lot of people listening will have been and done Scrum Factory. And like one of the things they do there is if you want to get somebody in a good body position, a lot of kids these days have got no awareness of their body about what they're doing. This is my purely my personal observation is that, you know, if you ask them to, to manipulate their body, to move their body to like, I want you to pull your shoulders back or I want you to stick your hips out or, you know, whatever it is that you're asking them to do, they, they physically can't do it. And so some of that instruction is wasted on them because they don't really understand what you're talking about. But also, it's much better for them not really to ever learn that. So you just say, "Look, oh, to get someone in a good scrum position, bend over. I'm going to put a back on a ball on your back, and I want you to kick the ball there. And pretty much bang straight away, they're going to hit a good position if they if they're able to. And so then you know, you, they haven't had to learn a lot of technical language. But you know, because that's the other thing that I notice now is that like a lot of coaches will be saying things like scaps, oh, retract your scaps. I want you to uh, contract your core." And all these sorts of things. And, you know, a lot of kids, they just haven't got a clue what a scapula is. Like, you know, some of the overly technical language. And that's because the coaches, it's always really interesting to see someone who's just done a coaching course because they're really technical with their language of what they've done. So, and, and now I'm seeing like, uh, seeing people talking to kids about things like affordances. And I think it's really important. I'm quite... I'm quite interested in language. My dad used to be in the police and uh, he is, like, if anyone thinks they've got the grammar police living with them, like they should try living with him because it was a matter of someone being convicted or not. If you had a comma in the wrong place or you used the wrong word, it would sometimes it would mean someone wouldn't get convicted. So, you know, or, or would, would get convicted where they shouldn't have. And so the use of language is really important. I think it's really important to be accurate in your language and the things you do. So affordances and uh, constraints and task environment performer, or, you know, say, say task environment organism, that is what's in the technical literature. But then when you're standing talking to a bunch of 12 year olds and I've seen this and say, so what does, what does this game afford you? And like the kids are looking at the bloke thinking what? And I say, where do you reckon? Where do you reckon the opportunities are in this game? What, what do you think? Where do you, where can you score in this game? You know, just be a bit more conversational with what you're doing and drop the technical technical language. I've totally gone off. No, no, and uh, it's been it's, been, it's, a good, it's been a good um, diversion and digression, and it gave me chances to reach behind me to pick a book off the shelf because it's uh, we're recording this the day after Francesco Molinari won the Open. British Open, if you want to yep. be, uh, uh, be uh, in trouble with anyone who loves their golf. And he is coached by Dave Aldred. And uh, Dave Aldred, yep. and Dave Aldred um, famously coached um, Johnny Wilkinson. And he wrote a fantastic book, which I would recommend. Uh, I don't get any commission for this. Uh, uh, is The Pressure Principle. And one of the things he says in there is to create those one, one idea focuses. Because otherwise you'll never... Never, never be able to strike the ball. And he says, um, don't, uh, he says, uh, focus on something on the back of the ball. So uh, Francesco Molinari would probably be standing over those three, four foot putts, or I think he sunk a putt of about six, seven foot, uh, which would turn out to be the winning putt. Uh, and he would have had one thought process in his mind. There is the biggest putt of his life. 
and that's it's the ability to handle that stress is important and that's the language you just go through your head and he probably didn't wasn't thinking right i've got to draw the club back here i've got to strike through the ball he's probably thinking right i've just got to hit the ball where it says number 32 or whatever he's got written on the back of the ball or um johnny wilkinson was supposed to be uh picturing someone in the crowd to hit and all all those sort of things those explicit cues is that is that right to say explicit cues am i getting that language right uh yeah yeah or yeah. not oh it, well yeah it it uh, and in what in what sense do you, well do let's you say that johnny Wilkinson is just about to uh keep the uh um strike strike the ball to uh, go through the posts and he is thinking right i'm picking a point uh beyond those posts where the ball is going to travel towards so he's not looking at the space between the posts he's picking a specific point um uh, beyond the post where the ball is travelling towards. So, again, I mean, the, the thing is that... So you're uh, he more may, external. 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 External, yes, that's the word. So, so yeah, there's obviously there's language ex- external cues. So I've got the, uh, the, yeah, the, the uh, athletic language police sorting me out there. Uh, but <laughs> for, for him, he wasn't necessarily... He, he might have been a student of this, of course, and saying, what's my external cue, Dave? Uh, but he will have been picking out Doris, I think, was the the word that being used. So that 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 there is important. The language and uh, it was fascinating after the after often after England's success in the World Cup football matches, how plenty of the players were talking about earning the process, living in the moment, all that sort of coaching language, which is the language which we are increasingly using ourselves. But I, I felt they understood what they meant, which is sometimes yeah, yeah. Uh, the difficulty is that they they get tied up in a language without actually being able to enact it because they don't understand what, as you said, what an affordance is, and um, yeah, yeah, they're, they're running around saying, "I'm I'm owning this process." Someone explains so badly. I don't, well, I don't know what owning the process is, but it sounds good. So, yeah. so you you're. Uh, God, we're digressing lots of things here. So yeah, yeah. let's go back to this anxious bias, <laughs> which is brilliant. So let's go back to this anxious bias then, uh, which we talked about before. It's yeah. bias doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It can, it's a it's a good thing. So how do we use yeah. this to get these players into the sort of positions that we want them to be, or we understand them to well, be in a position? Yeah, I think, well, the one thing I'd really say as well at the moment is that this is something that's sort of happened to me as I've got a bit older and a bit happier in my own skin, is that you've got to coach the way that feels right to you. And that is a process in itself because, you know, it's the same as a kid learning to walk, is that you have to copy someone else when you're first learning to do anything. You have to copy someone else, but then you need to find your own way of doing it. So you know, as a little kid, you're copying your mum and dad, you're seeing them moving around, you start to copy them, but then you develop your own way of walking and same with coaching. And so my natural bias is is just as you, as most people probably be able to say, talking incessantly and divert, you know, going on total tangents and all the rest of it. And so my action bias is to be in there talking and it's really a massive thing for me to overcome is to shut up and stand back on the sidelines and not say anything At, I'm really going to digress now, but this is something I think is really important 
and I think it's something that I've really learned to do a lot is that now and again, you've got to let things be a bit crap and you've got to let the athletes make mistakes. And, uh, I'll tell you a story. So (laughs) I was coaching on a camp and it was like a five day camp and day four at lunchtime, we're all really knackered, all the coaches and we've given the kids a bit of free time and uh we gave them a frisbee and some other bits and pieces and they decided to play a whole pitch everyone involved game of ultimate frisbee and so me and the other coaches were really knackered and we're just like oh we'll just stand here and watch this just let them get on with it for 20 minutes half hour and the first five minutes was terrible because they were the biggest kids were just picking up the frisbee and wanging it as hard as they could down the pitch and it was just falling on the floor turnover someone else pick it up smash it down the pitch as hard as they could and then the kids sort of thought, oh, this isn't working. So then they were literally just chucking it two yards to someone and doing like a chain up the pitch. And I was I was saying to the other boys, I was like, mate, this is awful. We need to get involved. This is a terrible game. But the honest truth of it was we couldn't be bothered. So we we're like, I'll just let them. It's, it's their free time. Let's just let them get on with it. And, you know, after 15 minutes, the, one of the best games of Ultimate Frisbee developed out of that. And it was because the kids got frustrated with it being so crap that they – they eventually worked out what they needed to do and they, they turned it into a really good game. The girls at netball, part of the reason that they learned to be able to, to interfere with things or to change things that they were doing was because I let them make a lot of mistakes. So one of the games we used to play, there was a really good SNC coach um, working for the EIS called Pete Gascoigne and he developed a, uh, uh, a games-based approach to strength and conditioning for netball. So everything was related to netball. So acceleration drills, deceleration drills. He had a series of drills, skills, and games. So if we were doing accelerations, we'd do some acceleration drills that you might ordinarily see in sprinting. Then we'd play some drills that were sort of part of netball. So they'd have like a, they'd have to pass a ball and sprint out and hit a point to receive the pass. And then they'd play a game that involved a lot of accelerations. And uh, one of the games, they had a lot of dots on the floor and you had to be on a dot to receive the ball. So it was about decelerating and stopping and being accurate with your stopping. And I said to them, right, there's 10 dots on the floor. Uh, do you want to add more dots or take away some dots? And I said, oh, we want to add more dots. We want to add more dots. I said, fine, you can add as many as you want. And I think they put like another 10 or 15 dots down. So pretty much the court was just a sea of dots. And I let them play the game. And I knew it was going to be really bad. But I let them play the game. And they turned around and said, oh, no, this isn't working. I said, why is that? And being conversational about it, not right. Okay, what is happening here? Why is this not working? It's like, right, okay, well, why do you think it's not working? And like, oh, it's just too many dots. It's too much information. We, we, need, we need to strip it back. So then there was just a little bit of information for them there that sometimes what you do can have a detrimental effect. You know, if you change something that you think is going to improve, it, it could actually have a detrimental effect. I say, all right, let's take them away then. And we were doing a lot of stuff like that, playing around with games and making changes to the games and they got an understanding of what make it what made it harder because it needed to be hard or what made it harder when actually it needed to be easier and so that then allowed them in that game with a the clapping they're like oh this is too easy we're just going to change it because they've been doing a lot of that and they've been practicing a lot of that so that is a massive uh, tangent but I think one of the things as a coach is sometimes you need to stand back and let things be a bit rubbish because that can be a highly motivating factor for the players is that they're not enjoying the game because they keep dropping the ball and they keep dropping the ball because they haven't got their hands up is to let the game be really crap and then say to them are you enjoying this no why is that because we keep dropping the ball so what sort of things can you do 
to make sure that we start catching the ball. And then, you know, they all, they're they actually thinking about that from the perspective of how do I make this game better, not how do I give the right answer to the coach mm. because it's about them playing the game and, and, they, and the engagement you get from it. And then they, oh, can we have another go? Oh, the number of times I've been playing something and let it be a bit crap and they're begging me to keep having a go at this game. So it's, it, it can be quite a, it can be quite a motivating factor in in certain circumstances. I wouldn't always do that, and sometimes sometimes if they're making it, if they're making mistakes, they're mistakes you need to sort out and you need to step in and you need to get rid of. So I'm, I wouldn't always advocate that approach. But I think there's a real bias in most coaches. The other way is, oh, hang on, this isn't working. Let's get involved. Let's start changing the rules of the game or the constraints or other bits and pieces when actually you've got to just let it breathe a little bit and you've got to let them make some mistakes because they might work it out themselves again show me and they might work it out themselves or um you know it's something that they need to sort of battle against a little bit they need to push against rather than you coming in and giving them the answer through through the rule through the rules of the game and it's interesting that you you're saying that again this is the dave alder's book speaking uh volumes because he talks about the ugly zone and that yeah. that is the the time when things don't look right. And uh, that get game, that free time game, is very typical. And as Stuart Armstrong is very keen on playground games, and I think that's a that's a different conversation because I think there's uh, there's great advantages to that, and there's also there are great dangers where you do need to step in. And I think you're quite right to say yeah. that there there are times when you do need to step in, and there are other times when you're going to step back. And yeah. the skill is known when. But also, I think the other skill is the the moment when you ask the question, and because they want to improve, whatever you say or whatever you suggest or whatever you help them suggest is far more powerful. That moment when they're saying, all right, coach, we want to move on. We want to get better. What do we do next? They're going to be far more receptive to that than you you dictating what will make them better. And that, uh, that, that is the power and that moment of real, real learning. Well, and I think that story there is a good way just to wrap up this one because uh, we are definitely going to do uh, part two of this because uh, we have uh, what you think is rambled. And I think <laughs> I've the one rambled. Um, but we've gone down a couple of routes which have been fascinating and there were some questions I never even got onto, which I definitely want to get onto so Simon I'm going to wrap it up there and we're going to do part two if you want to come back yeah yeah Yeah. I mean uh, uh, that's that's the only thing I'll say is that the one thing I'm quite wary of is that uh, I I really urge people to look at these things for themselves you know the things I've talked about because that's been an important part I think that's where a lot of problems come is when you get Chinese whispers of stuff so I'm here telling my stories and all the rest of it is go away and try and look at some of these concepts you know like I said, there's a, a lot of the researchers are on twitter they're really accessible they're really happy to talk to people and these are just my interpretations of it and i quite quite clearly have been wrong will be wrong in the future and and you need to adapt it for yourself um but yeah i don't take everything anyone tells you as gospel so um <laughs> you know, uh, that's i would urge people to, to go and look at it for themselves rather than you know, sit and listen and go, oh, that's fantastic, and going off and just copying things word for word, because I think you need to make it your own. So. I can remember, and you probably know Andy Key, um, who's um, who coached at um, a, good, a very high level, uh, amongst others at Leicester and places like that, and he often said to me is that the greatest danger he's often seen 
is coaches going away from coaching sessions saying, right, that's what I'm going to do in the next session. I'm not really understanding why it hasn't worked. And yeah. it, uh, yeah. it's the, the, again, the skill, and it's probably quite scary for a lot of coaches, is trying to adapt it for the people or the players or the athletes in front of them. And uh, especially for those coming off courses, they, yeah. they, they're probably working with four or five other coaches who are very keen. And then they suddenly arrive on a, a wet Sunday morning in November and try and enact it. And they can't work out why it's not working. And even if they put them through the ugly zone, it's not working yeah. because they haven't adapted it. Yeah, yeah. So I really enjoyed that. Um, and I'm looking forward to part two, maybe part three, part four. Yeah. Uh, if if you you can st- still ramble as well as you're doing, and um, oh. just uh, if you, uh, is underground athletics blog still uh, still active? Is it worth um, popping into? Because I think still for me, it's a great source of uh, information. Yeah, so I um, I've moved house. I've I've moved out of London into Suffolk, and we're we're setting up a new business up here in Suffolk, um, trying to get a little uh, sort of holiday and gym business up and running. So I haven't done anything with it for ten months, or maybe a bit more than that, a year. Um, so undergroundathletics.co.uk is the website. Um, there's a blog on there. I haven't really done anything with that lately, but there's a massive archive. If if people haven't ever looked at the site, if you if you look back at coaching matters, it's just like a big conglomeration of of interesting articles that I used to read and post and things that I found interesting. But what probably um, is of more interest is there's a button on there. I'm just going to my own website now. Uh, in the menu bar, there's a, there's a thing that says coaching matters roundup. And if you click on that, that I set up a feed of all the interesting blogs um, that I followed and that posts automatically. So every time one of the interesting blogs that I follow posts, it automatically goes in there. So that, that stayed quite current throughout. So that might be of interest to people. Um, it's got a bit of an S&C bias to it, but there are, there are other uh, coaching blogs on there and stuff. So that that's probably of more interest. All right, and I'll, I'll post a link underneath the podcast afterwards because uh, I thoroughly recommend yeah, cool. uh, people go and have a look at that. Anyway, Simon, brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, we look forward to catching up with you again on this. And uh, if people want to follow you on Twitter or for your various moments of twitter madness uh it's is it uh, at <laughs> Ram- yeah, ramblings twitter ramblings madness it's at sci underscore name b is that uh, is that that's the one no it's it's all it, it's all, all one right. word so it's at sci name b all right okay well i'll put that underneath again uh for people to click on and to get through to Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. Um, And um, thanks, Ben. We will look forward to catching up with you again in the near future. Definitely. Thanks, Dan. I really enjoyed it. Good. Right. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, Go over to rugbycoachweekly.net to find out a bit more. And uh, we'll speak to you all again soon. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to RugbyCoachWeekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.